He reminds them of these basic gospel truths that brought them to Christ and brought them to the place of being persecuted for Christians. So he reminds them that they were purchased with the blood with the blood of Christ, which is of greater worth than gold. He reminds them that God is presently keeping them through faith, that God has not abandoned them. The same God who sent Christ to suffer and die for them, the same God who brought them personally to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God was with them despite their trials, despite their persecutions. And then he goes on and he tells them, he points them to their unfading inheritance that's being kept for them in heaven. Well, good morning, brethren. Just as a brief introduction, uh, again, we're Jim Nesgoda from San Antonio, GCC, my wife, Bethany, and my sons, Noah and Ezra. And it is a privilege to be here with God's people. If you have your Bible today, we're going to be reading from the book of 1 Peter at chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7 when you get there. And we'll read it and then we can pray together. All right, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, brethren. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to hear your word, God, to hear your heart in these instructions, Lord to hear the truth of the gospel that permeates through this text, God, and that, Father, you would be glorified through Jesus Christ in all things, including in this message, including in, in the time together, in the fellowship afterwards, Lord. Lord, I pray that your word would go deep into our hearts, God, that you would stir our spirits in obedience and greater love towards you and towards your people, God, with a greater expectation to see your hand move in in our day and here in the city of Austin, for your glory. And in your name I ask these things. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we go into our text, I wanted to just give a very brief minute or two summary of the book of 1 Peter up to chapter 4, where we'll be reading from. And... I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights that are relevant to what we're going to be looking at today. So, first of all, this letter, 1 Peter, it's not written to a local church. It's not like the book of Ephesians, 
where it's written to one group of believers who are meeting together regularly week after week. It's written to a wide group of Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they're suffering severe persecution. Many of them are for their faith. They're going through various trials. They're suffering persecution. And so Peter writes to encourage them first and foremost by reminding them of the great price that Christ has paid to purchase them with his blood. He reminds them of these basic gospel truths that brought them to Christ and brought them to the place of being persecuted for Christians. So he reminds them that they were purchased with the blood, with the blood of Christ, which is of greater worth than gold. He reminds them that God is presently keeping them through faith, that God has not abandoned them. The same God who sent Christ to suffer and die for them, the same God who brought them personally to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God was with them despite their trials, despite their persecutions. And then he goes on and he tells them, he points them to their unfading inheritance that's being kept for them in heaven. He reminds them of what God did in the past, of God's present power at work in their lives, and what God has in store for those who love them. And the day when he wipes all of our tears from our eyes and all of the trials and the hardships and the heartbreaks of life have passed, and we're with God in the presence of the Lamb, worshiping him forever. And so, brethren, he goes on to call them to holiness and how they are to conduct themselves based upon all these realities and promises, how they're to conduct themselves at work and at home and among their persecutors. And I always, I always like to, when we're going to look at a practical Christian message, like hospitality, uh, a practical Christian message of how we conduct ourselves, to go back and do what the apostles did and start back with these gospel truths, with these promises of God, because it's the promises of God that bring the life and the reality to these things in our lives. God does not want dead works. He does not, if you're not serving Christ, God does not want you to go out, and if you're not born again, and start obeying these commands, thinking you're somehow drawing near to God or pleasing him because you're doing these things. All true Christian service begins at the cross, at what Christ has done for us, and it flows in response to the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that'll lead us to our text today. What we're going to look at specifically here, I wanted to give some extra context, but is going to be 1 Peter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, and especially 10. And it's going to be dealing with Christian love, Christian hospitality, and God's giftings he's given us to serve one another with. But we want to, again, look at all those things in light of verse 11 that says that in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So this is going to be a packed message. Don't worry about holding on to every minute detail. Worry about the picture that this is painting of the way that God has designed for him to be glorified through us in our conduct in all of these areas, that it's God's design to bring glory to himself through Christ in the church. 
Amen. So let's go in right here to our text to verse 8, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the word earnestly, before I go on, it's not a common word we use. That, that means zealously. That means someone who wants to get a scholarship into a top school to play ball, and they train and they focus their life and their energy on achieving this thing. It's an all-out zeal where you give yourself to this above every other pursuit in life as, as that would be. It's an all-out zeal. And here this first command is to keep loving one another earnestly, above all. Now, I want to I wanna stop and I want to establish love. We live in a day where love, you know this if you're out there, even on the streets of Austin, love means whatever anyone wants it to mean. It can mean the most perverse, vile thing. But as Christians... We need to constantly bring ourselves back to God's definition of love in order for us to actually live it out in the way that he calls us to. And don't, don't turn there. We'll all turn together someplace in a minute. But I'm going to read what I consider and I think what most would consider to be the, the simplest definition of Christian love. Again, don't turn there, but in John 13 you find Peter sitting at the table in the upper room with the Lord Jesus and the other disciples. And the Lord says these words in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that right there is the foundation of love. When you hear the word love, all true love, all Christian love comes from this place. It's rooted in Christ's love for us. It's not something we do. It's not an emotion that comes from us initially. It's not a feeling or an action that comes from us. It originates in Christ's love for us. It has to come from that reality you cannot love, you cannot obey this command to love unless you know the love of Christ. Not just in theory, not just you understand the love of Christ, but we have to have been recipients of it. We have to have had the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by trusting in Christ in order to then go and obey this command. And this command is just simply a proper response to that. Jesus says, as you see me loving you, you go and love one another in response to that. That's Christ's command right there, the new commandment he gives to us. That is Christian love. Practically, it would look like a sacrificial, servant-hearted love. You could include 1 Corinthians 13 in there as well. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, that's a brief, basic, foundational look at Christian love. And I did want to highlight one more aspect of Christian love, and I wanted to give it just a little bit more detail. If you want to turn, it's just a couple pages back in your Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 1, at verse 22 and 23. Peter says, 
1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And I, I wanted to note two things. One is in my notes at, that it's a brotherly love. It's a familial love. You may have heard it say that the church is like a family. I, I hear that a lot. The church is like a family. That's actually not quite true. According to Jesus, the church is a family. It is the most real, eternal family that's ever existed and when Jesus points at his disciples, he says, that's my mother, that's my brother, that's my sister. He does not say that's like, she's like a mother to me. He says, that's my mother, that's my brother right there. The Lord Jesus expects us, we need to get a greater comprehension of that, that we are family, we're God's family, his children adopted in here on this earth. And through that knowledge, through that Thanksgiving towards God for doing that. We can love one another. But just as a side note, you know what's interesting? Peter says, since you've been born again, right there in verse 23, not of perishable seed but imperishable, love one another. It's the same thing that Christ commanded him. Remember, this is a guy who was sitting there at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the guy walking the streets of Israel with Jesus whenever Peter, one of the disciples, says, hey, your, your mother and your, they're, they're, they're outside waiting for you. He was there when Jesus said, no, Peter, that's my mother right there. Peter knew these things firsthand, and you can almost, if you read the book of 1 Peter, it's shocking. You can almost read this book, and, and your mind can go immediately to something in the Gospels that Peter experienced that brings forth this truth that he's relaying to the church. And so this is the message that's from the beginning, from Christ, through Peter, to these disciples, that we're to love one another sacrificially as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I've sort of been, I believe this, and this has been an area of study of me for some years, just the family nature of the church, but we had something we had something happen to us a couple months ago. We had a brother and sister. Now, San Antonio's a big church, if you've ever been there, relative to churches this size, which is what we're accustomed to. You just can never meet everyone. There's so many people coming and going. But we had a brother and sister come into the church. They didn't join yet. They moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where we had moved here from. And we just talked in passing. And they have, I think, five kids four or five, five kids under the age of five, including twins. And we said, we should have you over and get to know each other as brother and sister. And he said, well, we're, it's hard for us. Can we have you over? And they invited us over their house, and we went over there. And on the way, my mind is thinking, well, what, what if we don't click? What if we don't get along? What if we don't mesh? This could be really awkward. We don't really know these people. And we went there, and this sister... In my mind, I don't, know, I don't know if this is reality, but she was, I think she had both babies in her arms, and she's cooking food, and the kids are running around doing stuff, and they're like, brethren, can we get you some water? Brethren, can we, can we serve you? Brethren, share your testimony with us. 
And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I was just struck with this reality that this is a sister in Christ I've never met, my long lost sister, and she's sitting there, even though her hands are obviously full, serving me as a brother, and that that's not common, that's not ordinary, and I saw something in that of the value of what Christ gives to this brotherly love, and it caused my heart to go up in thanksgiving to Christ at that moment, just watching a sister do this for me. And I believe that the depth of Christian love that we're called to is much deeper than what many of us may have come to already, brethren. But I'll, I'll move on here. So we're to love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, according to the end of verse 8. There's multiple scriptural ways that love covers a multitude of sins. You can read it in several places in Scripture with different applications or outworkings of how it covers sins. But here in Peter, I, I'm going to use the reference that he's most likely using, and it most fits our context. And it's from Proverbs 12. Don't turn there, but it simply says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. The King James tra translates that as, or New King James, it says love covers all sins. So the covering of sin is in contrast to the stirring up of strife. Imagine this. First of all, a disclaimer. This is not talking about covering up willful debaucherous sins that require church discipline. This isn't covering up sin the way that criminals cover up their tracks, right? This is talking about common relational sins that happen in the life of the church. Someone doesn't greet you one Sunday morning. You see them greeting other sisters, but they didn't greet you. And you think, oh, I, I knew they didn't like me. And you start to maybe think things about brethren, about others, based on these small offenses. Maybe someone says something to you that rubs you the wrong way. Maybe they were thoughtless, they hurt your feelings with it. But listen to me, this sin-covering love would want you to think about all the thoughtless, careless ways that since you've been a believer, that you've sinned against the Lord Jesus in small words, in small deeds, in sins of omission, and sins of commission. And it wants you to say, based upon that, based upon the fact that my Lord Jesus Christ bore my sins gladly on that tree, I think I'm going to let this one go. I think I'm going to let this one go, and I'm going to cover over that sin for the sake of unity in the church and the testimony of Christ and the furthering of the gospel, and I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to give them the cold shoulder, keep them at arm's length. I'm going to put it under the blood of Christ, and we're going to move forward, and I'm going to do that over and over again the same way that the Lord Jesus has done so for me. So, Brotherly love, I, I wanted to include this verse even though it's not the main thrust of my message because without a God-glorifying offense-covering brotherly love, the things we're going to look at in regards to serving each other in hospitality, they're going to be religious chores. They're going to be things, really, they're coming over next Friday and I have to cook for them. Really, these brethren are asking this of us again 
They're going to become dead religious works that don't glorify God, and the whole purpose of our verses that we're looking at is so that God would be glorified rightly in the church. I was thinking, you know, Paul said, without love we have nothing. I think of it as this way. You take any number and multiply it by zero, and you get zero. It doesn't matter if it's five times zero. It doesn't matter if it's five million times zero. The result's the same. It's nothing. It's nothing. You take your doctrines of grace, you take your five solas, you take the ways you've served the Lord in the past, and you remove love from the equation, you literally have nothing according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Peter says, above all, love one another. That means of greatest importance, love one another, brethren. So let's take this love with us, and let's move on to verse 9. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, hospitality is defined as a fondness of guests and loving strangers and a warm affection expressed towards them. And here in Peter, again, this hospitality that he's instructing them to is in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a costly persecution where if you become associated with Christians who are being persecuted, you could bring persecution upon yourself. And it's in the midst of poverty that many of these brethren would be experiencing because of the persecution. And yet, in light of this, in light of the danger and the inconvenience, they're to receive each other warmly and affectionately without grumbling. And how much more so are we, brethren, even those who we don't get along with as well in the church, even those who may rub us the wrong way continually, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are harder to love, we're to receive them warmly and we're to do so even at our own expense. And genuine Christian brotherly love, like we just looked at, is required to fulfill this. So, Despite us not being in the same circumstances, and this church specifically is in different circumstances, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to, we'll, we'll get to it, but I want to I make one statement right off the bat. These are not secondary optional parts of the Christian life, and we're going to see that. We're going to make this point very clearly as we move on into verse 10. These are foundational practices, and they have a gospel advancing quality in them. Listen, if the gospel is not advancing in a local church, I believe it could be because this command right here is being neglected. And I can take that back to what the Lord Jesus said in John 13 and in John 17. He said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. I could take it back to Acts chapter 2, where they met daily in the temple courts and broke bread from house to house having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to the church daily. The Lord has built into Christian love intrinsically a gospel witness, especially in days of division like we live in, that have a permeating sweet aroma that God will bring his elect in through. I'm not dismissing the need for gospel preaching and evangelism, of course. I'm just stating what the scriptures state that there is a gospel witness in this love. 
and in this hospitality. And despite us not being persecuted, despite us not being scattered here in Austin or down in San Antonio, I did want to say that there is something more to this extending hospitality. One, it's a practical means of getting to know other brothers and sisters. The reason I'm here preaching in San Antonio is through a series of events where people invited me in their home for hospitality. It led us moving to San Antonio. It led me to preaching at the rescue mission in San Antonio, which led me being invited to teach in the church, which led me here. So when you're looking at how God orchestrates his church and how God advances his kingdom, do not undermine this hospitality. It's a practical way to know the brethren, and it's a means by which God, as we saw in John 13, will advance the gospel. And this is a story I love. It's from Jim Elliott's life. Jim Elliott was a missionary, if you don't know him, who was martyred in Ecuador. He went down. He was killed for the gospel's sake. And his wife later went back to the tribe that killed him, and most of that tribe came to Christ. And there's a gospel witness in the jungles of Ecuador today because this man went there. But what most people don't know in that story, because it's not highlighted, is one of the things that led Jim Elliot to setting his face to go and preach to a dangerous tribe in the jungle was his mom would regularly clean the house, prepare meals to have missionaries in the home so they could host missionaries. And Jim Elliott, as a young boy, heard these stories, heard the testimony of Christ working, and it's one of the things God used to stir his heart and to send him to the ends of the earth and to become a true martyr in recent times for the sake of the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of hospitality. And remember this, though, even outside of times of persecution, hospitality will not happen in a perfect bubble. Whether it's amongst yourselves, whether it's among other believers, you know, in other churches here, or among the brethren in San Antonio, which I'm putting a plug in for that, I would, I would encourage us, some of the brethren in San Antonio I have, and the church here, that we need to be more connected in the advancement of the gospel it's much easier for us to travel one to another than it was in these days for brethren to travel from Coloss to another church by foot under perils and under persecution. So we need to keep that perspective in mind. It's a long drive. I-35 is brutal, but we have none of the persecutions and little of the trials that they had had back then. So again, this is a an expectation and an expectation that I believe has the hope of furthering the gospel in it, of having brethren in the house, brethren with different backgrounds, different giftings, different strengths and experiences, brethren who may rub you the wrong way, who may say something that rubs you the wrong way, and in that and in the context of Christian love, receiving the brethren for whom Christ died, brethren who are off in some secondary doctrinal matter, receiving them on the basis of Christ once again without grumbling, just as the Lord Jesus received us. It's a reasonable expectation. That's a very reasonable expectation that the Christian life, all of our hobbies and all of our other pursuits outside of the church, outside of Sundays and Wednesdays, that they would take a back seat to the furthering of the gospel through means even such as the simplicity of hospitality. Now, 
We're going we're gonna to move on to verse 10 in a moment here. But before we do, we're looking at this big picture of God being glorified in the church. We looked at God being glorified through genuine Christian love. We looked at God being glorified through the outworking of that love in hospitality. And I like to think of it this way before I move on. I want to make a distinction and a separation from the next verse. In verse 9, in hospitality, we're serving each other with ordinary things. Ordinary things. Our time, our resources, our energy. These are things that God gives to all people. The, the lost and the saved alike, the righteous and the unrighteous. We all have time. Most of us have houses. Most of us have some food that we can share with others. But when we serve each other with ordinary things, they become absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And this is part of the reason I preach this message and, and why I sort of, this is an area that I'm passionate about in the church. This is not me being sensational. Paul told the church in Philippi their monetary gift offering, he said that it was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice or a sweet-smelling aroma acceptable and pleasing to God. That when you have brethren in your house and you love the brethren and you serve the brethren with ordinary things, they take on almost an extraordinary I want to be careful with this, but Paul used this word. He said a sweet-smelling aroma. He's giving, he's giving the illustration of what we read in, in the book of Revelation of incense being raised to God day and night. That this is something that is far beyond what we see with our eyes and that our Heavenly Father is deeply pleased with this. And as I mentioned, he'll often use it to advance the gospel, the simplicity of this, in ways that we can never imagine. So, serving, serving God with ordinary things, brethren. But in verse 10, uh, we're going to get into the heart of the message here. And I'm going to back up everything I say here with Scripture. These are, these are things I see lacking in our Reformed circles as far as them being taught with the weight that Scripture gives to them. So as we go to verse 10, we're going to be looking at ways we serve each other with things that are inherently extraordinary. They're extraordinary because they come by the Holy Spirit and are only given to believers. So verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And when we look at this verse, I'm going to tell you up front what I'm going to tell you. There's four points in this I wanted to lay out. Every believer has at least one gift from God, such as exhorting or a gift of exceptional generosity. And that gift is one of the many gracious means by which God kindly helps other believers. Okay? It's a way, just like with hospitality, that God helps other believers and advances the gospel. We're going to see these aren't gifts that we own. It's not like we think of a gift where you give me a birthday present and it's mine. These are gifts we're given to manage and pass out to others. And lastly, these are gifts that we're given to steward. We're to serve with them and we will give an account to God 
on the day of judgment. These things will be tried by fire. They are not optional secondary issues in the Christian life. So, one thing to note on this, the end of this verse uses the term God's buried grace. I wanted to clear this up. When, I, when we think of the grace of God, we always think of it as God's unmerited favor in electing us, in choosing us to, for salvation, in bringing the gospel to us, in opening our hearts to receive the gospel. And that is the proper primary way to think of God's grace. But you hear it all the time. I do at least. Uh, I had a lot of grace from the Lord this week. People will use that term in a very vague sense as well to just cover any good, kind providence of God. I, uh, there, I felt grace from the Lord. I felt help from the Lord. But in our text, the grace that we're talking about is specifically referring to these gifts that we're going to look at. And we'll see that clearly as we go along. So, verse 10 it says, as each has received a gift. The New King James says, as each one received a gift. And I, I bring that up and I say that to draw out a distinction again that it could be unclear if everyone receives a gift, but the original language, the Greek supports that. And the King James, I believe the NASB, other translations draw that out more, that each and every person who is a born-again Christian has received a gift from God that he expects you to serve other brethren with and that you'll be accountable to on the day of judgment. So don't excuse yourself from this instruction or assume it doesn't apply to you, even if you don't know what your gift is. I pray the Lord will, will trust you through this text with that. So we receive the gift. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul puts it this way, that these gifts are given to each one of us and that the Spirit distributes them to each one of us individually as he wills. So these gifts are sovereign. God sovereignly gives us gifts. The same way he sovereignly saves us, he sovereignly gives us gifts by which we're to serve one another. And we know that God gives good gifts to his children. It's a direct fit in context to this. So whatever God's given you is good. It's not a burden. It's not something burdensome. It's a special favor and a kindness, like a father might give his five-year-old daughter a special birthday present that her eyes light up when she sees what her father has loved her by presenting her this gift. This is not a burdensome thing, and I want to make that clear. I'm talking about accountability, which we will be accountable, but this is not a burdensome thing. This is a gift from your heavenly father, and it is beautiful. Now, it's, it's worth noting again, we receive these gifts. They're good gifts, but what is the gift? The ESV says that we received a gift, but this is very specifically, as I will labor through the scriptures to show for in a moment, referring to spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit. You may know those terms. And I know in Reformed circles, we're very weary of spiritual gifts because of all the nonsense that goes out there in the world under the banner or guise of spiritual gifts. But again, these are good gifts given from God, and they're spiritual gifts, and that's the nearly universal accepted reading of this text for many good reasons. 
And I wanted to look at a couple of those reasons. In a minute, we'll turn somewhere together to help draw this out. But one of those good reasons is simply the Greek word that's used here for gift is charisma. It's a word that's primarily used in Scripture when speaking clearly of spiritual gifts. It's a word that's used strictly by Paul other than this one place here in Peter where this word charisma is used. And we're not going to turn there, but in the end of this letter, it says this letter is written by, by Silvanus, by Silas, who was Paul's ministry partner. He clearly learned this word from Paul. He co-authored the letter to the First Thessalonians. He co-authored that with Paul. He was with Paul in Corinth when all of these spiritual gifts were at work to such an extent that it looked like charismatic chaos. He was there through Paul's missionary journeys, and when Peter, by the Holy Spirit, is dictating this text, and Silas, by the Holy Spirit, is writing this text down, he chooses this word. He chooses it specifically, and if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, I want to show this a little bit more plainly. Romans chapter 12, about 25 pages back, for those of you who are new Christians, about this far. Romans 12, and I wanted to look at verse 6. Paul says to the church in Rome, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And we can stop there because this is not a sermon on specific spiritual gifts. Having gifts, charismas, same word, that differ according to the grace, same Greek word that Peter uses and Silas transcribes, let us use them. So you see this same connection of the gift being a grace of God. And the reason we know that, and we can read it more plainly here, is because Paul does follow this up with that list of spiritual gifts, ranging from prophecy to exhortation and so on. So we can see it plainly here, but we can see very plainly by the original language and by, by the similar construction of this text here in Romans what Peter is talking about. Like I said, there's many good reasons for it. That's one, but, but stay here for a second. I wanted to, while we're here, show, show this bigger picture that I keep talking about of God being glorified through all these means of love and hospitality and gifts. And Paul does go on in these verses, in verses 6, 7, and 8, to talk about spiritual gifts, but, but just move down to verse 9. Right when Paul's done speaking of these spiritual gifts, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. So you see the same thing, the same surrounding thoughts that Paul has, that what Peter's telling us is not something that's relegated to one time and place, that this was God's pattern for the early church, for himself to be glorified and for the brethren to be built up through these means of brotherly love. And if we just go down to verse, let's start, I guess, in verse 12, just down two more verses. 
Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So there you have it. You have spiritual gifts, you have brotherly love, you have hospitality, you have persevering through trials, you have the exact same message that Peter's preaching to the saints. God puts a very high premium on these things, much higher than we often do in reform circles today. So for the sake of time, let's go back to 1 Peter, back to chapter 4. And we've looked at what this, what this gift is, that it's spiritual gifts. We've looked at the universal nature of how this gift, along with love and hospitality, works to glorify God in the church and how it's commanded universally to the early church. And back here in Peter, we don't have that list of gifts. And again, we're not going to go through what is your spiritual gift today. But the last thing I wanted to mention about them before moving on is that these gifts are not only sovereignly given to us by God, that it says that they're sovereignly, Paul tells us this, don't turn there, they're sovereignly worked out through us by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. That when a gift is exercised, it is God's Spirit within us willing and working that out. So when we read those great doctrinal truths of where God's worksmanship created in Christ to do good works, that it's God who works and wills in us, this is actually the technicality of how it works. It's God's Spirit working that out through us for the profit of all, Paul said. So we're to serve one another and we're to build each other up in the church through these gifts. And we're to serve one another, and that, that poses a problem to a lot of people. I'm not going to take a show of hands, but it, it might be, it's probable you don't know what your spiritual gift is. A lot of believers don't know what their spiritual gift is. And so the dilemma is, how can I serve the brethren with the gift that I don't even know what it is? And in God's infinite wisdom, if you'll stick with me, I want to show you that it, it is possible actually to serve the brethren with a gift when you don't know what it is. Stick with me for a moment, and we are going to get there. But again, we're to steward these gifts. We're to serve others in the church with them. We're to serve humbly, and we're to serve faithfully with our gifting. They're freely given to us, and we're to freely distribute them. And as his verse 11 says, Peter says, we're not to serve in our own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. So, we're to serve one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. In all of history, from the creation of the world until the end of the age, God's will for you and I is to serve one another from a heart of love and thanksgiving in response to Christ. One another is the phrase that I'm really going to major on here with the rest of my time. You'll find this term, Peter uses it three times in our text. We're to love one another. We're to show hospitality to one another. We're to serve one another. That term, one another, depending on your translation and how you count it, 
The exact number is not important, but you'll find it at least 50 to 60 times in the New Testament. Commands of how we're to engage with one another in the church. And the interesting thing is, those commands are not given to elders. Those commands are given to every member of the body of Christ, from the youngest believer to the oldest saint, one another commands. God's designed his body to be built up by a variety, he calls it in Peter, through his varied grace, the New King James says, through his manifold grace, through his many-membered body. And that's good news for a church without eldership, that the lack of eldership does not need to stop the building up of the saints and the advancement of the gospel in Austin, that you have in yourselves, that we all have in ourselves, a gifting from God that's given specifically to work itself out towards that end. That is by no means diminishing the need for eldership. But I want to say this. If you read the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts, there's often years from the time that Paul goes and plants a church to the time when he goes back and appoints elder. And what's happening in that time frame you can look in Antioch, you can look in these different churches, is that God is equipping people through their gifts to still advance the gospel, to still build each other up, and through that is usually how Paul identified men to appoint to the eldership. They had the gift of teaching, they were mature, they met the qualifications. So we don't want to think of ourselves as handicapped by not having elders, because I'll say this, I'll say this as a guy who holds to the doctrines of grace. In our churches, we do not by any means take advantage of these 50 to 60 one-anotherings, these 15 to 20 spiritual gifts that God's appointed in the church. And so we want to be... We want to be encouraged by how much untapped potential there is. And all it takes is one hungry heart desiring God's glory in the church, desiring to serve in whatever small way God puts on your heart that could light a fire. Fire, I've heard it said recently, is always a judgment in Scripture, not the case. The Lord Jesus says, I'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. In the Old Testament, a fire on my altar will never go out. I'm using fire in a good sense to light a fire that burns for Christ in this church and in this city so that God might be glorified. And I want to back this up. I looked at statistics, but even among Bible-believing, well, let's just say Reformed churches, among Bible-believing Reformed churches, you go to a lot of them, You get a sermon, like what I'm giving you right now, and you get singing songs, which is a fulfillment of a one-anothering in Ephesians 5, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. You get two of the one-anothers and spiritual gifts out of the 50 to 60 plus 20 spiritual gifts that God's ordained to build up the church. And when we look at the state of the world today, we want to be very careful to ascribe it to God's sovereignty 
if it's actually our lack and negligence in simply being the means that God has sovereignly chosen to carry out the furtherance of the gospel. So brethren, I encourage you to be stirred up. Go look through scripture, pull up your East Order, Bible Gateway, put in one another, and look at all of these commands, including these ones that we've looked at today, and look at the promises that are associated with them, brethren, and go after them. In Ephesians 4, it says, Paul wrote, when the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He says the same thing to the church in Corinth. This is one anothering ministry, the royal priesthood and ministry of all the saints working to build up the church. And lack of eldership, while that is greatly needed, while teaching is a primary needed gift in the church, I'm obviously teaching in the church. I, we're by no means diminishing these things, but we want to elevate these other things to their proper scriptural place and we want to trust God that he will glorify himself, that he'll strengthen the saints, that he'll help reach the lost through these means. Amen. Peter says that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our text, this message is to show you biblically these things that Peter is talking about that do so bring God glory. So we've looked at brotherly love. We've looked at hospitality. And we've looked at spiritual gifts. And just for a couple of closing thoughts, a couple of points, I said earlier, you might not know what your spiritual gift is. And how can you obey God if you do not know your spiritual gift? All right. This is what you need. You don't need to go take a spiritual gift quiz. You'll find stuff like that. It's, it's mostly nonsense. What you need is you need a heart of love for Christ and for the brethren and a desire to serve those people who God providentially has put you in community with, who's put you in relationship with outside of the local church. You need a heart that says, God, I want to love and strengthen my brethren in whatever little way you can use me. You need that heart of love and when you start serving and actually walking in that and actually practicing that, that is a common way that people discover, that Christians discover their spiritual gift. When they're already practicing it, when someone tells you, brother, you really encouraged me. And it's actually the second person that's told you that in the past month. You may say, hey, I, I, maybe God's given me a gift of exhortation or encouragement or, or something along those lines. And, it, you know, it may work itself out in that manner so we want to be busy at work for the lord jesus we want to be looking at those 50 to 60 one anotherings in scriptures and we want to be looking at ways to serve so don't get hung up on the exact detail go serve seek the lord and serve the brethren the gospel advancing promises that come through that, the glory of God that comes through that are tremendous. God chooses the weak things, the little things, the things that are not to 
Shame that which is wise to shame that which is mighty. God chooses things like this to advance his gospel. Point two of three. If you do know your gift, beware of neglecting it. Beware of hyper-Calvinism. God ordains all things, and he ordains the means by which he brings about those things. We've just looked at some of those means by which he brings about the strengthening of his people. Paul told Timothy to fan into flame the gift that's been put in you by the laying on of hands and by prophecy. Paul tells us to actively desire these gifts. Peter tells us to steward them. You know, what's interesting is Paul told the church in Corinth, even with all their abuses, with their charismatic chaos, after he corrected those things, he told them to continue to earnestly desire those gifts. Nowhere in scripture do you see those gifts being being subjugated or being put aside. Peter tells us to be good stewards of them. Paul, I reference 1 Thessalonians, tells them don't quench the spirit. Don't have this idea that God's sovereignty is going to work independent of his people obediently being led by his spirit and bringing about his ends. Don't be hyper-Calvinistic. And point three, beware of perfectionism. Listen, I've been in circles where if you say one thing slightly wrong, one secondary doctrinal preposition slightly wrong, you got two people jumping down your throat questioning maybe if you're even a believer in some places. You didn't do that right. You didn't say that right. That is not the heart of Christ. You look at Christ dealing with his failing disciples. This man, Peter, who wrote this book, who says, if any man speak, let him speak oracles of God. You look at all his failures. You look at all of those things where the Lord even publicly rebuked him, where Paul publicly rebuked him. And you look at the way that God used him, and God humbled him, and God brought about this letter of instruction to us. Beware of perfectionism. Go out in faith, in humility, relying on the power of God. There's, I want to leave you with a proverb, actually, and a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Proverbs 14.4 says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. No oxen, a clean barn. You got a nice clean barn because there's no animals in there messing it up. But the labor, the increased, the harvest comes by way of those very ox. We do not want to be people who have the cleanest manger. And in reform circles, there, there's a perfectionism to dot every I and cross every T before we dare go out and do anything lest we somehow shame Christ or say something wrong or do something wrong. That's not the heart of Jesus. The goal is not to have the cleanest manger. The cleanest manger is the one with no life in it, and that's going to result in no abundant increase in the crops. The clean manger with the plaque of the five solas hung on the wall for everyone to see, proudly displayed. That's not what we want. We want truth, and we want truth to drive us with hearts of love and faith to obey Christ, to build up the brethren, to take the city for Christ, and to glorify God. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this in his book, Joy Unspeakable. He says, take your New Testament as it is. Look at the New Testament Christian. Look at the New Testament church. 
and you see it as vibrant with spiritual life. And of course, it's always life that leads to excesses. There's no problem of discipline in the graveyard. There's no problem very much in a formal church. The problems arise when there is life. We want to be a life-marked, Holy Spirit-filled, faithfully laboring people who were the more mature brothers in your church might have to come to you and say, hey, hey, brother, this is awesome what you're doing, but let me explain this to you a little more clearly. We actually want that. We don't want to wait to have 100% some doctrine of divinity to go out and do anything. We want to move. We want to move in faith, and we want to trust that in the church, which I know there are capable men to teach, who can help steer that and guide you in that and shepherd you in that. And we want to trust that God is going to bring about an abundant harvest, a strengthening of the church, and a furtherance of his gospel through this, brethren. It's all for his glory. It's all by his strength. God, his promises are true and faithful, and he will do this. And I encourage you to look into this matter more if I've failed to convince you in any way. It's an absolutely remarkable, awesome privilege to be sons and daughters of the living God. It's an absolute miracle that when we turn to Christ and trust in him and place our faith in him, that he not only cleanses us of our sins and puts us in a legal, proper, right standing before God, but he adopts us as his sons and daughters. Because listen, if all he did was wipe away the legal penalty of our sins, if you're like me, that would leave you in a still, miserable, wandering, wavering condition. But God, the Father, puts his strong hand on us and he says, you're mine. You're my son. I not only forgive you, I own you. I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I'm going to teach you in the way you should go. And we've looked at some of those ways today. And the fact that God would allow us to take part in the furthering of his gospel and the serving of the saints is an absolute privilege and should never feel burdensome to us if we're viewing the cross of Christ rightly. Let's pray, brethren, before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, I, I pray you take one or two truths from your word that we heard today, God, and strengthen it to the heart, hearts of your people, God, to your sons and daughters, Lord. I pray for the church in Austin, God. I pray that you stir up giftings, that you stir up love, that you stir up an expectancy to see you move by your power, by your strength, and for your glory among your people and outside these walls in this lost, dark city. We pray you save and add to this church new converts, Lord. For your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name.